Uh, tonight we're in Psalm 45. Psalm 45. I'm going to pray for us in just a minute, and uh, then we're going to make some introductory statements, and then read the psalm together, and then I'm going to teach from it a little bit. Really good stuff tonight. I think you're going to enjoy Psalm 45. You'll be glad you came to church tonight, so I just want to make you aware of that. Let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Father in heaven, we pause in this moment to give you glory. Lord, you're worthy of our worship and worthy of our praise, and Lord, there are so many good things happening in our church, and Lord, we recognize that as your hand of grace. Uh, Lord, you are far better to us than we deserve. And God, we are just so grateful for the way you're at work and the way you're moving. And we give you all of the glory, Lord. It's all about you. And we're just grateful and thankful for uh, what you've done and what you are doing. And can't wait to see what you are going to continue to do through this body. Lord, we come to this time where we study your word and we want to say thank you for your word. And we pray as we study your word, you would speak to us in a mighty way that you would use your word to change our lives, to encourage us, to inspire us, to challenge us. Uh, Lord, just have your way in our midst by your Spirit, and we'll thank you, Lord, for that grace. Uh, Again, we lift this time up to you. We place it in your hands and ask that you would move. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If someone came up to you and said, or asked, explain to me the book of Psalms. How would you answer? How would you summarize what the book of Psalms are all about. Well, I've given you two statements there in your notes. One comes from Dr. Kendall Easley. He says, The Psalms are about God, the true and glorious King, who is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. And so as you read the Psalms, you see different writers going through different things. You see psalmists who are on mountaintops, experiencing great victory. You see psalmists writing who are in the valley, who are going through very difficult things. And whether we see one on the mountaintop or in the valley, they are still giving praise to God and still trusting God even through their different circumstances. And so God is worthy of our praise and worthy of our trust. Amen? And the Psalms remind us of that. I like how John Piper says it. The Psalms are songs. They are poems. They are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist Because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. And so the Psalms give words, if you will, to our emotions and allow us to express ourselves. Because as you read through the Psalms, you will see the entire gamut of the emotional life of humanity somewhere in here. And so uh, the the Psalms give a voice to our emotions, help us to express ourselves. Uh, Again... They are collections of hymns, and these, these each chapter are, are a different hymn that was written to be sung by God's people in corporate worship. And that's what they're, so they're poetic, they're written, it's, a, it's basically the Hebrew hymn book, and there's much for us to learn about God and about serving God from these words. So look there with me, Psalm 45, Psalm 45, and look how it starts there in the small letters. It says, to the choir master, so just another reminder, this is for music, to the choir master, according to lilies. And so scholars believe lilies is a tune of that day and time. And so uh, if you would have said lilies when this was written, people would have known what tune you were talking about. It would be like if I said, hey, sing this to the tune of Amazing Grace. You know the tune of Amazing Grace. And everyone apparently knew the tune, uh, tune that, we, that the Bible calls lilies. All right. A mascal, which is a musical term of the sons of Korah. Sons of Korah, these were... The 
uh, priests that were in charge of leading the music among God's people. A love song. And so there's another little designation here. This is intended to be a love song. So look what it says in verse 1. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to who? The king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, this is interesting, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil, uh, the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the riches of the people. All glorious in the princess in her, is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. And so, this is a psalm that's addressed there very clearly in verse 1 to the king. Now, to kind of understand this psalm correctly, you need to understand this first phrase there, the first blank in your notes. This is a messianic psalm. A messianic psalm, M-E-S-S-I-N-I-C, messianic, M-E-S-S-I-A-N-I-C, sorry, messianic psalm, which means it's a psalm about the Messiah. To be even more clear, it's a psalm about Jesus, because Jesus is clearly the Christ, which means anointed one, or Messiah. And so how do you know this psalm is about Jesus? Because it says there, it's, it's to the king. There's a lot of speculation which king is in view here and, and a lot of different views and theories. But the king here is King Jesus. You say, wait, how do you know that? Because look what it says in verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So the one being addressed here that's called king is also called God. David was a great king. He wasn't God. Right? Solomon was a great king. He wasn't God. And the one who's called king here is also called God. And the New Testament takes away all mystery as to who's being referred to here in this psalm. Because these verses are used in Hebrews chapter 1. So turn there with me. Hold your place. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. I want to show you this to make the case that Psalm 45 is about Jesus. Prophetically looking at the person and work of Christ. Hebrews chapter 1. Look in verse 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. So how has He spoken to us in the last days? By His Son. Who's His Son? 
Jesus. And he goes on to describe Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is, is more excellent than theirs. So it's clearly here talking about Jesus. Would you all agree with that? Now, fast forward down to verse 8. But of the Son, he says, the verse before he says, this is how God refers to angels. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's a quote directly from Psalm 45. So the writer of Hebrews makes it clear that when the psalmist wrote, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, he was prophetically writing about Jesus. Everybody got that? So Psalm 45 is a messianic psalm. Now, the psalm writer may have been viewing a royal wedding. Okay, This might be, a lot of scholars believe, uh, the background might be maybe the wedding of Solomon to Pharaoh's daughter from Egypt. They think that might be the background of this wedding. And so it could be that the psalmist is looking at this royal wedding and begins to write about the wedding of the king. But as the psalmist continued to write, the Holy Spirit of God worked through that psalmist to write down certain words that were about a king greater than the king he was, he was watching. That were about a king who is the king of all kings. His name is Jesus. And so it's like the psalmist looked at a king in that day and time, and that king was representative of a greater king. And the Holy Spirit inspired him to write these words about the greater king. So the psalmist might have started thinking about Solomon, but as he wrote, it was clear he's writing about someone greater than Solomon. Amen? He was writing about King Jesus. And so, as we think about that and we look back at Psalm 45, we look at it through this lens. This is a messianic psalm. It is a psalm that's clearly about Jesus, written hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was on the earth. That's historically, archaeological, uh, archaeologically verifiable. The Psalms were written hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary and lived in the first century. And so it's amazing to see how this ancient document speaks so clearly of Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he has done. And what we see emerge in Psalm 45 is this beautiful picture, multifaceted presentation of who Jesus Christ is. So let's just walk through the Psalm. Let me show you some things this psalm teaches us about Jesus. First of all, I hear the choir tonight. Yeah, they're singing out. That's going to be here Sunday, all right? Um, what, what do we see in this psalm about Jesus? First of all, in this psalm, we see Jesus as the great king. The great king. So it says there in verse 45, I'm sorry, chapter 45, verse 1, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king, again, talking about the king of kings. He might have started by looking at Solomon, but as he wrote about Solomon, he began to write about a greater king. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is, 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 the, is like the pen of a ready scribe. And so we see here that the king is worthy of worship. Worthy of worship. My heart is overflowing, he's saying, with, with pleasing thoughts about the king. I want to say good things about the king. I want to praise the king. That's worship. The king is worthy of worship. And and notice here that worship overflows from the heart to the tongue. Because look what it says in verse 1. My heart 
overflows. So where does worship start? Where does it start? See, if you think worship's all about your lips, then worship is going to be dry and stale and boring and no big deal. But if your heart is in love with Christ to the degree where it's overflowing and you've just got to get it out and express how much He means to you, that's real worship. It it starts in the heart, a heart that loves Jesus, and it overflows from the heart to the tongue. Look what he says. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. So my heart is bubbling up with love for the king. I'm praising the king, speaking of the greatness of the king, and it's like my tongue just can't stop saying things about the king. It's like a ready scribe. The words just keep coming. The words are flowing. Worship overflows from the heart to the tongue. Now that word translated overflows there in verse 1, the Hebrew word means to be moved or stirred up to have strong, emotional, pleasurable feelings. In other words, we are not meant in worship to simply offer mechanical words. In other words, when we come to worship, we're not just going through the motions. You know what he said in Isaiah, the Lord said in Isaiah about the people of Israel? He said, You worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. So you're just saying stuff that you don't really mean. Right? Like, you know, we come to church on Sunday, and, uh, you know, we say, Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me. And we're saying things with our lips, and our heart's not engaged. We're just going through the motions. The picture here of worship is, your heart is stirred up. With love for Christ. It's, it's stirred up with affection for Christ. It just bubbles over, right? And so worship is more than just mechanical words. But listen, we're also um, not meant as worshipers to have compl- uh, contemplative hearts with no public praise. In other words, some people will say that, that worship or faith is a private matter. Have you ever heard someone say that? My faith is a private matter. I just, it's just between me and God. I want to just keep it to myself. Listen, that is not a biblical idea. It's not. He says here, hey, I have faith in the king. He's great. He's awesome. And I just can't help but say things about him because it overflows from my heart. And so worship is more than words with no emotions behind it. And it's more than just emotions with no words. Right? God expects us to love Him. He wants our hearts to be stirred up with adoration for Him. And He wants us to get together in public settings and tell each other how great we think Jesus is. That's worship. And listen, and when that happens, when God's people come with stirred up hearts and public praise, when that happens, there's nothing this world offers that even comes close to corporate worship. I mean, I've been to Broadway plays, and, and, and I've been to, to uh, you know, musicals and concerts, and I've been to Disney World, and I've seen movies, and, and I've, been, I, I've seen the best this world has to offer in terms of entertainment. But I'm telling you, when it comes to God's people getting together, when their hearts are engaged, and they're worshiping Him, there is nothing in, that this world has to offer that even comes close to that experience. Amen? And the psalmist here says... Boy, my heart is overflowing with love for the king. I'm just 
impressed by the king. You know, you know one of the reasons we struggle with corporate worship is because we're just not that impressed with Jesus. Right? It's one of the problems. We're just not that impressed with Jesus. And so we see here the king is worthy of worship. Now, worship recognizes Christ's beauty. Look what it says there in verse 2. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. The most handsome of the sons of men. So he talks about the king. Again, he might have started by thinking about Solomon, but there's a king in, in view here that's greater than Solomon. He's speaking of the, of the greatness and the grandeur and the majesty of Jesus. Jesus Christ is, is beautiful. We, when we say Jesus is beautiful, we're not speaking of his physical appearance because over in Isaiah 52 and 53 it says, physically, nothing stood out about him. If you were in the first century and Jesus walked by, you wouldn't have said, well, there goes the Messiah. He's got a halo and his face is glowing and he's got blonde hair and blue eyes. Look at him. That's the Messiah. That You wouldn't have said that because nothing stood out about him physically. That's what the Bible says. He looked like a first century male that lived in the Palestinian region of the world. Probably had dark features, bronze skin, dark hair. Uh, dark eyebrows, probably a beard, but nothing stood out about him. It, I'm, I'm telling you, in the first century in Israel, if Jesus Christ had blonde hair, blue eyes, he would have stuck out. Okay, Or if his fl- face glowed everywhere he went, he would have stuck out, right? The Bible says he didn't stick out. So we're not talking about physical appearance here, all right? We're talking about his person, his nature, his character, who he is, what makes Jesus Jesus. And when you think about who Jesus is and, and what makes Jesus Jesus, you've got, you got to step back and say, isn't he beautiful? In his perfections, in his majesty, isn't he beautiful? That's what worship recognizes. Worship recognizes Christ's beauty. And then worship recognizes Christ's words. Look in verse 2. You are the most handsome of the sons of men, Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. So he's saying, you are a great king, and everything that comes from your mouth is great. Your teaching, your word is great. The truth that comes from the king is great truth. There's a passage over in Mark, and I want to tell you the reference, but I don't want to tell you wrong, so just take my word for it, it's there. But... Jesus is teaching in a synagogue, and the Bible says that the people that were listening were, listen to this, astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Somebody do a, somebody do a, uh, go to your ESV Bible app and hit search and type in astonished teaching and see where that comes up. But this says they were astonished at the teaching of the Lord. No one ever came on the scene in Israel that taught like Jesus taught. And we need to recognize the words that come from his mouth are precious words. His word is truth. His word is precious. Anybody find it yet? Where are we? Astonished teaching of the Lord. Where is it, Kevin? I said Matthew. Didn't I say Matthew? Oh, I said more. Okay. Matthew what? Matthew 7, 28. So they're astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And so we need to, we need to uh, be astonished by his words. Worship recognizes Christ's words. And so we see here that Jesus is the great king. Jesus is the great king. Secondly, 
in this psalm, we see Jesus as the mighty warrior. The mighty warrior. Matthew 7, 28. So that would have been after the Sermon on the Mount, right? So he taught Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, and it says they were astonished at his teaching. Pretty awesome. Look what it says there in verse 3. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. So now talking about the king's sword. That's a weapon, right? He's talking about warfare here. He's speaking of Christ, the mighty warrior. Look what he says next. In your majesty, ride out victoriously. This is warfare imagery. For the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. And so the Bible is clear here that Jesus is a mighty warrior. Now, a lot of people don't like to think about God as a warrior, but the Bible conveys that God is a warrior, that he fights for his cause, for truth, for righteousness, it says there in that passage. But the, the, the phraseology that, that Christ is a warrior is, is ultimately meant to convey that Jesus Christ is victorious. Now, what has Jesus Christ conquered? What is Jesus Christ? When we say Jesus Christ is victorious, what's he victorious over? Let me give you four things that Jesus Christ has conquered as a mighty warrior. First of all, Christ is victorious over sin. Look in 1 Corinthians with me. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56. 1 Corinthians 15. The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are reminded in those verses that you and I have a big problem, and the problem is sin. You know what the letter is right in the middle of the word sin? What? I. We all got the problem, right? We all have the problem of sin. The Bible is very clear. There is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.10, Romans 3.23. All of sin fallen short of the glory of God. So we've all blown it, and God is holy, and our sin, our impurity separates us from God. Isaiah 59 2 says, Our sin separates us from God. So if there's sin that is between us and God, and we're separated from Him, and we die in that condition, that's a problem. Because if we die separated from God, we'll spend eternity separated from God, forever and ever and ever in that awful place called hell. And we've all got this issue. We've all sinned against a holy God. So our only hope is that someone takes care of our sin issue, takes it away, so there's no longer anything separating us from God, thereby we can have a relationship with God, right? And Jesus is the only one that can deal with our sin. That's why he came to earth. He came to earth, lived a perfect life. He went to the cross. And on the cross, the Bible says, he became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He took our sin on himself. And on the cross, he died for our sins. He paid the penalty that you and I deserve to pay. So, if we embrace him as our Lord and Savior, he applies his shed blood to our account. And his blood washes away our sin, washes away our impurity, takes away that barrier between us and God. Therefore, we can be reconciled to God, and we can call him friend and father. That's good news, right? Only Jesus can deal with your sin problem. And Christ died on the cross to conquer your sin. He's done everything necessary to defeat your sin. And guess what? All you got to do is receive him 
as Lord and Savior. It's a free gift that you receive. And if you receive him as your Lord and Savior, he forgives you of all of your sins. Past, present, and things you're going to do tomorrow. Amen? That's good news because you'll probably mess up tomorrow, right? And so Christ is victorious over sin. Christ is victorious over death. Back up in chapter 15 to verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, talking about our new glorified bodies that God will give us, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in what? Victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? In other words, death has no victory over us. It has no sting in our lives because Jesus Christ has defeated death. If you back up in chapter 15, you see that he defeated death through his resurrection. When he rose from the grave, it proved that he could give eternal life. A dead man can't give you eternal life, right? But when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it proved he was who he said he was. He could do what he said he could do. And because he rose from the dead, now he can raise us from the dead. That's the point here. Therefore, we don't have to be scared of death. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, death is not an end point. Death is simply a transition into the very presence of Jesus. Amen? You don't have to be scared. And one day God's going to raise your body up. And so he's victorious over our death. He's victorious over death itself. And he did that by, by rising from the dead himself. Christ is victorious also over the demonic realm. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. May get you out early tonight. What do you think? Some of you are scoffing at me right now. It hurts my feelings.